there's a blessed simplicity to the gospel. As, as a parent, I love this. Um, to be able at night when your small children ask you, what do I need to know? What do I need to understand? What do I need to do to be a Christian? How do I become a Christian? We can point to the blessed simplicity of a verse like Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, which says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a wonderful depiction of the gospel and the right response to the gospel. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you believe the core truth of the gospel that Christ died for our sins in our place, in our stead, but on the third day he was raised that we would have life, that everyone who puts their trust in him, that believes that God raised him from the dead, the finished work of Jesus, if you believe that in your heart, and then respond rightly with the response of repentance, that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Now, to confess Jesus is Lord is not like just some other name that we give Jesus. It's not like Mr. Jesus or Sir Jesus or Jesus Sir, like Jesus Lord. It's not like that. It's actually an ascription. It's a title that we give to him because of the role that he plays in our life by virtue of the fact that he is the one who created us and who has redeemed us, who suffered and died in our place and rose on our behalf and reconciles us to God because of all that he has done for us in saving us. We now confess you're the boss, you're the king, you're the Lord, your way goes, not mine. It's a depiction of repentance, of turning from trust in self to following Jesus as king. Simple. You ever wonder what was so wrong about Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the other tree? It, it, it wasn't that it, it looked wrong or tasted wrong. It wasn't poisonous, and it wasn't even a complicated command that God had given to them such that they could somehow misunderstand. What was it that was wrong about eating the fruit? Well, what was wrong with it was God said, don't. A simple command, a simple reason and a simple expectation of obedience. He would be Lord, Adam and Eve, and us in their footsteps will have nothing to do with it. We want to be Lord. We want to determine right and wrong. We want to draw our own boundaries. We want to carve our own path. We want to be self-determining and self-governing. So, before we get into the text and the topic for this morning, there's two things I want to share with you. One is a warning. The other is a hope and encouragement. The, the warning is this, that when we talk about sexuality, sexuality is like the fruit in this sense. 
It's not hard to understand that God has made us male and female. That, that masculine and feminine are universal, absolute, clearly revealed facts. It's not hard to understand. It's not hard to see. Much of our objections and our rebellion and our pushback and our fighting, much, not all, but much, is grounded simply in this reality that we don't want him to be Lord. That we want to be self-determining. The simple reality of Scripture is that God made boys who will grow into men and he made girls who will grow into women and no surgery, no drugs, and no act of our will can change that. If we do not like that and we want to fight against that, your fight is not primarily one to understand complicated facts of Scripture. Your fight is to come under the Lordship of Jesus who commands you. And to simply ask your heart, am I willing to let him be Lord? That's, that's the warning. Because I think sometimes we pick the wrong fight. Is Jesus your Lord first and foremost? That's going to set the stage for everything else. Here's the encouragement for those of us for whom these issues are a struggle. Understand this. God has given you by virtue of your struggle easy access and close proximity to the gospel. See, we struggle, right? As a church community, we struggle to live celibate lives as Christians. We, we struggle. Some of us are inclined towards infidelity in our marriages. I know that some of us wrestle with issues surrounding the expression of our gender or our sexuality. Some of us wrestle with and struggle with same-sex attraction that frankly looks kind of like the fruit did in the garden. It looks appealing. It seems to arouse my senses. And it doesn't look like I'm going to die and the whole world like Satan comes along and says, you will not surely die. I know that this is the struggle for many of us. And, and this week, as I, was, as I was praying about this and praying for you specifically and wondering why God gives us these struggles, why, why this is the lot for some of us, I was encouraged, and I hope you're encouraged by this, in as much as you struggle with anything to do with the reality that we are made male and female for the fulfillment of sexual desires in the covenant union of marriage, wherever you struggle, your struggle is close to the gospel. Because as the Apostle Paul says, look, this mystery is profound about male and female becoming one flesh, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Wherever your longings, your desires, your impulses seem to be steering you astray, there's immediate access to the gospel because the true longing that you are experiencing is a longing to be part of the bride, to be united to Christ. You are already close in the moment of temptation to your comfort and your acceptance and the love of your Savior who gave himself for you. He's given you quick access to the gospel and to comfort and to love in your struggles. Now that's all by way of introduction. We've already covered lots of ground so far in our series in Genesis. We're in the seventh week now. 
It feels like it should be a week of rest or something. I don't know. Uh, it's, not, it's not quite yet. We still got some hard work to do. Okay, understand this. God created all things. We saw that at the beginning, right? God is the creator of all things, and so he rules over all things. He orders all things by his word and by the spirit. And so all of the ordering that remains in this world must take place under the authority of his word and by his spirit. He created us in his image and in his likeness, in his likeness for relationship with him as his image to rule over his earth to expand his dominion and he's done in order to do all of this he's made us male and female and he calls us to be united in marriage a covenantal union of male and female for the advancement of his dominion for the display of his covenantal love and for the multiplication of his images but he has created us, male and female, specifically to reflect himself. If we're to understand marriage as a union of male and female, like we talked about last week, we need to take a step back and say, okay, but what are male and female as they're created in the garden? So we get to the text. And we have three headings. Just by way of warning, there are three headings this morning. Uh, the first one is like where we spend basically all the time. So if you're looking at your watch and you're like, oh my goodness, uh, just understand, I know, we're spending all the time in the first one, Okay. So that being said, here's the first one. It's simply this. The two sexes are different by design. They're different by design. And all I'm trying to emphasize here with all of the time that we're going to spend on this is that this is absolutely not arbitrary or accidental. It's not a result of the fall. It's not a result of the curse. It is God's good design for humanity to flourish. Man and woman were created in different ways, in different places, at different times, from different material, for different purposes, and given different tasks. This is as deliberate in creation as anything else, okay? Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. When there was no bush of the field, when there was no bush of the field yet in the land, and no small plant of the land, or uh, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Uh, there's, there's two problems, right? There's no plants, no bushes. The words, um, the words here are for like types of plants that you don't necessarily eat, so just like your garden plants, and then plants that you would expect to bring forth fruit. So, so the basic idea is all that we need for humanity to flourish, in, in this flashback into the six days of creation, we understand there was a time when the plants were not yet. Why were the plants not yet? There's a reason given for these two things that are missing. Four is, is this causal. Here's why they didn't exist. One, because Yahweh God hadn't caused it to rain on the land. And two, there was no man to work the ground. there's no Adam, the word that we get, Adam, to, to work the Adamah, the, the land. The, the two words are intimately connected. They derive from each other. There's no man to work the land. And the, the word for land here, it's, it's, not, um, it's not the word for like land, like territory, like country or earth or something like that. It's the word for arable land. So the type of land that you're supposed to make a garden out of, the type of land that's supposed to bring forth fruit. So there's something wrong, something incomplete, something that needs to be fixed so that the land itself can be fruitful and multiply and prosper. So what is God going to do? Well, first of all, he solves the first problem. He gives water. There's a mist going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. I think that's just a reference to the water cycle. 
right? It goes up and then it comes down and it waters the ground. But some people take it different ways. It could be like some um, old way that God used to water the earth. It could be the springs from the earth. It could be the rivers that he describes. The bottom line is that, that God is the one who gives the water, but there's still one necessary to do the work. So here's the second part of the problem answered. Verse 7, then Yahweh God formed the man of the dust from the ground. The ground needs help. So from the ground, he creates one who will work the ground so that the ground will flourish. And he breathed into the nostrils, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Not a soul with a body, and not a body with a soul, but one who is union of body and soul. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The word for formed, um, it's a word that would typically be used with, uh, with pottery. So it, it's, it's a careful, hands-on, forming, crafting, artistic kind of language that God is using. There is deliberate act of God in the creation of the Adam, the man. And he puts him in the garden. Understand this, he was created outside the garden and then brought into the garden. He was created outside of what was controlled and flourishing and beautiful and comfortable, but then brought into the paradise. Verse 9, out of the ground, Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant and pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, I think what's going on here is you've got something like an apprenticeship. God takes man, he forms man outside the garden, brings him into the walls of the garden, and then cultivates it and causes it to flourish to say, see what I did? This is going to be your occupation through the rest of creation to go and to subdue and to fill and to exercise dominion. Bring flourishing out of all of what I've put in creation. And then verses 10 to 14, as an aside, go on to describe the rivers, right? The rivers that flow from the mountain where Eden is down into the various lands surrounding it, and they bring life. And as the rivers are already going, the water is already going, so the images that the work still needs to be done everywhere where the waters go. There's work that remains for man, and the land is pictured. It's almost like it's pregnant. There's, there's, there's gold, and there's precious stones, and bedellium, and onyx, and all these treasures to be harvested, to be subdued, to be used for the good of creation and for the good of humanity. There's so much flourishing yet to happen. This is the work that remains for the man. Verse 15, then, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden. Again, he's emphasizing this, clarifying, put him in the garden. Why? To work it and to keep it. To work it, that is to provide for yourself and for those in your charge and to keep it, to protect it. The word for garden is a word for a walled area. It's a defined area. This is my property. This is our land. This is where we live. Guard it, keep it, cause it to flourish and provide for those who dwell there. And Yahweh God commanded the man. He gave him the command, saying, You may surely eat of, the tree, eat of every tree of the garden, but you know the command. Don't, don't eat of the one tree or you'll die. 
understand that in this, as God puts him there to work it and to keep it and gives him the command, also the necessary implication is that he's also charged with not just providing and protecting, but passing on God's word. There's a stewardship here that the word was given when no one else was there to hear it. And it was the responsibility of the Adam to pass on, the Adam to pass on his knowledge of God's word to subsequent generations. He's a steward of God's place, provider and protector of God's people, and a steward of God's word. This is what the man is created for, how he is created. Now, now think about that narrative in contrast with this separate narrative now of the creation of the woman. She is created second. The man was created first. There are separate accounts of their creation. Verse 18, you understand, just like there was a problem when man had to be created, so there's a problem when woman needs to be created. Verse 18, it's not good. It it is emphatically not good that the man should be alone. So God says, I will make a helper corresponding to him, one opposite and equal to him, one who fits him. Now out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man. He's emphasizing again, everything else that's living on earth has been brought out of the earth. So you would expect him now to create a woman, a helper for man out of the earth. That's setting us up for the surprise. All the animals come before Adam and whatever he names them, that was its name. Understand, do you remember in the first three days of creation as God was creating and and, and setting apart dominions and, and, and establishing territories and dividing. He was calling, and that was its name, right? So the light he saw was good, and so he called it day, and the darkness he called night. It's an exercise of dominion. It's an exercise of authority. Now the man, as his image bearer, exercising this dominion, is calling and naming just like God did. Whatever he called it, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But even in all the dominion, there's still not found a helper fit for him. So when the Adamah, the land, was in need of someone to help it prosper, God reached into the land and created one to help it prosper. When the man the ish is in need, God will reach into him and pull out one who will help him to live and prosper. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, verse 21, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, bone and flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he built like, um, like Moses is going to write about the, the building, the construction of the tabernacle, like David's going to build the temple, like Paul's going to call us to live for the building up, the edification of the church, the bride of Christ. He builds the woman and brings her to the man, and the man says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called. Again, he names woman because she was taken out of man. She will be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Taken from his rib. Here, here's a quote from, uh, that you've probably heard before if you spent much time thinking about Genesis in churches. From Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator. He writes this. It's famous, but it's famous for a reason. It's so good. He says this. He says, Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, 
but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. This is the union that God has created us for, is male and female. Understand what's happening here, okay? Just as there was a glory and a splendor of a certain kind in the first three days of creation, when God is naming and taming and separating and bringing clarity to dominion, so also there's a more intricate and careful and relational and beautiful glory to the reality that in the second three days of creation, he fills and populates So in the first three days, there's strength and power as he exercises his authority over light and dark. He separates the heavens above from the seas below and the dry land from the heaving oceans. There is strength and there is might and there is dominion. And in the second three days, he beautifies and populates the heavens with stars and sun and moon. He beautifies and populates the waters and the heavens with fish and with birds so that they all teem with the multiplication of life and community. He beautifies and populates the dry land with animals and finally with humanity. The climax of all creation, the crown of our glory, woman herself, created from man to complete man, to be the crown of his beauty and glory and to enable him to flourish. See, the pattern holds. If you've got eyes to see, if you've got ears to hear, in the first act of creation in Genesis 1, there was a problem. The earth was without form and void, so God establishes form and fills the void. In Genesis chapter 2, there's a problem. Dominion needs to be exercised. The creation can flourish. God needs to be imaged. He needs to be represented. But no one type of human can fully represent the image of God. So he'll be represented in male and female, representative of the first three days and the second three days of God's creative work. I'm trying to argue this to make this as clear as we can. Ask a few questions. Okay, ready? Here. What was the problem that each was created to solve? The man was created to solve the problem that the land couldn't flourish. There was work that needed to be done, dominion that needed to be exercised. The woman was created to solve the problem of life can't multiply, community can't be established, creation can't be beautified. Where were each of them created? The man was created outside the garden, shown what needed to be done, and brought inside the garden to establish it and to expand it as an, as an expression of dominion. Woman was created in the garden. This is her home. She has, unlike the man with an outward orientation, an inward orientation to the flourishing of the life of the community and the multiplication of people. What was the task each of them were given? The man was given the task of working and keeping the garden, expanding dominion. She was given the task of helping the man expressing domestication. They reflect the glory of God, the twofold glory of God revealed in his acts of creation in the six days. Now, understand, when we say all this, um, I'm talking about um, if you want to impress your friends, you can use a, a well, if you're a geek like me, um, and you want to impress your friends, you can use a Latin term. Some of you like Latin. Um, 
Augustine coined the term in the, in the fifth century, rationis seminalis. Um, what he means by that is just seeds of reason. The, 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 the seeds of all that's rational and ordered were present in creation. In God's work of creation, he takes all that will be and all that should be and packs it in seed form into what we see in creation. So what I'm trying to express to you with these categories is it's not a delimitation. It's not like these are the only things that male and female can do, but these are the seeds. These are the springboards. Everything should grow up and out and in conformity with these truths. Alistair Roberts, in, in an article that I find really helpful, if you want to read more about this, um, I can recommend that to you. I can send that to you by email afterwards as well. Just feel free to let me know. In his article, this is how he describes it. He says, the different focal points of men and women's creational vocations, what they're created to do, what they're called to do in Genesis, does not represent the full measure or scope of their callings, as if women only existed to bear children or men only to be farmers, but rather are the seeds from which broader callings can thematically develop. can't overstate the interdependence here. Man cannot bring dominion to all creation without his helper. Helper is not a subjugation. It's a, it's a description of her essential nature. You know what it is? If you need a helper and don't have one, you're helpless. That's man without woman. But she likewise has no dominion to domesticate without him. To use a crass analogy in all of this, the man builds the house and the woman fills it with life and with beauty. She makes it a home. And we see this, right, in our, in our longings. A woman longs to be seen, adored for her beauty, and the blessings that she brings to others, the life that she gives to others. That's not wrong. It reflects how she was created and designed. A man longs to be respected for his strength, his dominion, the order that he brings, the provision, the protection that he provides for those he loves and cares for. That's not wrong. That's what we were created to be. There's remnants and fragments of Eden still left in us despite the fall. So manhood is bound up somehow with responsibility. He's the one who's created first. He's supposed to get the ball rolling. He's supposed to say, this is the direction. This is the dominion. This is the establishing of the territories and the boundaries. He's bound up with responsibility, with accountability. He's responsible when God comes looking for answers. The womanhood is bound up with responsiveness. She's a helper corresponding to him. She responds to his lead. She comes alongside and stands with and helps to fill in all the gaps of all the stuff he leaves missing. She beautifies and fills. I, I, I hope with these categories, as we're talking about these seeds, I, I don't want it to feel like a noose tightening. I want it to feel like horizons expanding. I want it, my, my goal here is that it would be encouraging and stimulating imagination. What then could it be in my life? What would it be to be a man who cares to conquer creation in ways that reflect God's character? What, what would it look like to be a man who expresses dominion like God? 
What would it be to be a man who protects and provides, who guards my family and the church, who stewards the word of God well for oncoming generations? What would it be to be a man who goes out into my community, into my workplace, into my church and says, how can I help bring the order and the kingdom and the rule of God to this place? What would it be like to be a man with clear enough conviction to say these are the borders, these are the boundaries, these are the principles, this is where we stand, and to invite those with you to stand with you. If enough clarity to call someone to stand with you, that's leadership. What would it mean to be a woman who cares deeply about the multiplication and the flourishing of life, both in quality and in quantity, spiritually and physically, to be oriented towards the flourishing of the community, the people around me, the building of strong relationships. As a woman to carefully and wisely and convictionally look at your church or your husband or your friends And say, how has God uniquely called me and gifted me and designed me to respond, to help, to nourish, and to bring flourishing with beauty for the glory of God? I'm asking these in question forms really because I I don't have the answers. I, I think I've got some suggestions, but not full answers. And I think the reason for that is simple. As we said, it's seeds. If you take two, like say, maple seeds and they fall into the ground and they fall into the ground and it looks like the same seeds, same type of seeds, but they grow up and they grow into different shaped trees, different sized trees, different root systems, different branches. They look different, though in essence they're the same. What it's going to look like to grow into a man of God or a woman of God will look different depending on your cultural context, the person that you're married to, the church that you belong to, the expressions of it might look different, but the categories of it are clear. Okay. That's just the first heading. Don't worry. Like I said, we're going to motor on the next two, okay? Because right now, some of you are like, okay, so those categories, sure, whatever, they might sound helpful or good, but frankly, I don't know what world you're living in because that does not describe my experience of male and female. And really, I don't know anyone who could say, yeah, that describes my experience of male and female, and the reason is because this, the second heading is this, we feel the fall, we feel it, we feel it in our sexes, in the expression of our sex and our sexuality as male and female, we feel it. So man, why, why, if this is is right, what you're saying is right, why does it feel wrong so much of the time? Well, it's, it's for the same reason that if you go to the doctor and you've got a broken ankle, when they twist your ankle, you're like, ah, my ankle. Or if, you, if they think you might have appendicitis, they go right for the point of pain. They start pushing on your stomach. The, the point of pain indicates, indicates to us, yeah, that's the right place. That's where there's a problem. As the fall has occurred, sin has occurred, it's affected us, and it has brought its results, and we feel the pain here. That's indicating a right diagnosis. Genesis 3. Turn over to Genesis 3 and verse 16. After Adam and Eve have sinned, here's how God describes And notice... Before sin, God dealt with male and female separately. After sin, even with the curse and the announcement of what the curse means, he's still dealing with male and female as distinct from one another. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain. That's a, that's a pun, right? She was supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Now he's multiplying her pain in childbearing. 
in pain, you shall bring forth children. Understand, that's not simply the birthing process. That's everything to do with reproductive systems and relationships. All that you go through to bring forth children, you will experience pain. Your desire shall be contrary to husband. There'll be conflict in the relationship that's supposed to be harmonious and unified. You'll be against him, trying to usurp his rightful place as leader, but he shall rule over you using the strength that was supposed to protect and to keep and to serve, to dominate. Why would she experience pain here? Why is the whole of the marriage relationship bound up in this expression of frustration for her? Because this was the area of her domain. Relationships flourishing, the multiplication of humanity. Do do you want... As a woman, a good relationship with your husband. Yeah. But then what do we experience? Well, he's absent. He's absent when you want him present, either physically, mentally, emotionally. So you try to grab the reins and get this thing back under control because you feel the impulse. But he won't be controlled the way you want him to be. And he gets angry or bitter or frustrated. So he exercises ungodly dominion over you, power or control over you by virtue of his strength. The rest of the book of Genesis is filled with stories like this of, of, of women whose wombs are in need of the miraculous intervention of God's grace. And marriages that are broken and husbands that take multiple wives and sleep with their servants and try to circumvent God's good design with all kinds of other foolish and sinful acts. And it's not just Genesis, it's, it's all of our lives, right? In the begetting of children, the finding of a spouse, the maintaining of relationships, it feels frankly cursed. That's her domain. And that's where she feels the pain. Here's the reality for the man as well, verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the treatment. Now listen, this is not like, so you guys don't listen to your wives. That's, that's not what God's saying, okay? There's a contrast. He's saying you believed her, but you didn't believe me. That's the problem. I commanded you not, and she said, go ahead. And he listened to her instead of me. You shall not eat of it. That's what I said. So cursed is the ground because of you. Why the ground? Because that was his domain. That's what he was created to work. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. You will do it. You're still going to do it. The design's still there. The pattern's still there. But it will be painful and hard. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. He was supposed to cultivate life and flourishing and fruitfulness from the ground, but instead the ground will fight him all the days of his life. His work will not go well. It'll fight against him. He wants crops, but it'll bring thorns and thistles, and at the end he's going to die, and the ground will swallow him back up. Everything he's called to subdue and show God's good, gracious, gentle and just dominion over will fight against him. Again, think of the rest of 
Genesis, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, our forefathers in the faith, wandering without a home, trying to find a land to plant themselves and to flourish. This feels like so much of our experience still today too, right? feel very much like we're a people without a home. The reality of our, our experience as gendered, as sexed beings is broken. It's why a man can be consumed. Problems at work, even when he's at home, his mind is still there. That's why he can spend hours. You watch, he spent hours trying to fix the Wi-Fi. Why? Like, it's, like it's fine. The home theater system, he is so engrossed. And all the time you're sitting there, wife's, wife's, wife's looking, I'm like, why doesn't he care about our relationship? Like, here's about the stupid Wi-Fi. This is the reality of the curse. We're trying to bring dominion to subdue, and she's saying, let's flourish in relationship. We're designed to work together, but we war against. So remember the temptation, right? The pattern of temptation that we've seen. Satan, in the temptation, did not have anything evil to work with, so he used what's good, and he distorted the desire. Take it in some way or at some time or some degree, which you shouldn't. Take it in some different way he wants to distort. And and when we experience the distortion now and the results of the curse and the fall, the temptation that we face is to swing the pendulum the other way and to say, if that's what it's like to live as male and female in this kind of broken relationship, then let's just do away with male and female. There must be something wrong with the reality realities of male and female, so let's overthrow the whole system. But when you have a bad meal one night, you don't swear off eating for the rest of your life. You wake up in the morning, and no matter how gross the food was the night before, you're still hungry. The longing's still there. And the longing, even in the presence of what was broken and disgusting, the longing still testifies to the reality of male and female and the goodness of it. Just like when you wake up and you're hungry, it testifies to you the reality that you were created for food and food is good and you should seek it and find it. So here's the last thing we need to get our heads around is is simply this, that we feel the fall in our sexes, redemption. Redemption is the real longing. The real longing here is not to be ungendered. It's not to throw off the constraints of biblical sexuality, but to become fully what we've been designed to be in the first place, fully masculine, fully feminine. Now, this, this may seem random, but like honestly, ponder. When God created, in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, when God describes what he's doing, when he creates humanity, of all the things he could have paused and interjected with little brackets, with a little comment to clarify when he created them in his image, here's what it meant. Of all the things he could have said, he stopped on gender. He stopped on our sex. Of all the ways to break up Genesis 2, as we do this little flashback to the narrative and unfolding time of Genesis 1 to understand what was the actual timeline, how did things unfold, of all the things that he could bring clarity to, why does he divide the narrative around our sexes? It's because it's so intrinsically bound up with what we're created to be. And it will never change. In the, in the fifth century, an African theologian, I refer to him all the time, I, my friend Augustine, 
he was writing um, to, uh, against some people who said, <laughs> this is great. So they said, probably a new creation in heaven, there won't be any women. Um, <laughs> it's a great theological argument, right? And the reason they were saying this was because probably cause just because they're sexist. But they had a theological reason for it. They said, in Ephesians 4, it says we're supposed to grow up into the fullness of manhood, into maturity, into the fullness of Christ. And you can't grow into full manhood and be woman. So probably all the women will just turn into men in heaven, and that'll be glory. <laughs> Freud would have a heyday. I don't know. But, like, um, he, he responds to this, and he says, well, he says, first of all, no. But then he says, uh, here's, here's one of the ways, like, you can see this. He says, if you look at Matthew chapter 19, when the, Jesus' opponents come to him and they ask him about divorce, he refers back to what God did in creation and says there was male and female, and that was good. The two shall become one flesh. But, so, so the principle still stands. But then he says this about new creation, about in heaven. He says, in heaven they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Those are two distinct realities, right? To marry is what men do. To be given in marriage is what women do. If, if Augustine says, if what Jesus, if, if in reality there was no gender, if there's no sex in heaven, then Jesus just would have said, you idiots, we, we won't be male and female in heaven. Or, or there won't be women in heaven, obviously. If one has to go, obviously it'd be women. No, Jesus would never say that. He says there will be male and female, but they will not be given in marriage. The nature of the relationship will be different, but they will be fully masculine and fully feminine. I don't know how many of us have contemplated this reality. That in glory for eternity, you will be masculine or feminine. This is not something we can downplay or deny. It's not something we can change or reorient. It's intrinsically part of what we were created to be and to do. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a picture that's helpful for me as I try to comprehend what this means, and, and I hope it's helpful for you. Um, another buddy of mine, C.S. Lewis, he, he's, he puts it this way. He, he uses, in an, in an essay called Transposition, he uses this image. He's not really a buddy of mine. He's dead, but I wish he was a friend. One day he will be. He uses this image. He says, imagine um, a woman and her child have, have, been, have been thrown into prison, and the, and the child was just an infant, just a newborn when, when they were thrown in, and they're in this dungeon, and, um, and they can't see out. There's no windows. There's just a little hole in the ceiling. You can only see a little bit every now and then of like maybe some clouds passing by or something like that, and that's all they can see of the outside world. But in this dungeon, there happened to be a stack of paper and pencils, and so the mother, in hopes of one day being released and, and wanting to get her child used to what it'll be like to be free and to be out in creation, starts drawing pictures of, of what creation looks like outside of this dungeon. And so with pencil and paper on flat paper in two-dimensional shapes, she's drawing and trying to color and shade to the best of her ability all of what the rest of the world is. And one day they are freed and, 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 and they come out and the child looks around and the response is, well, where are the pencil lines? wait a second, the pencil lines were never actually the point. They reflected a reality, but the reality is textured, it's beautiful, it has depth, it's so much greater. The pencil lines weren't untrue, but they were pointing to a greater truth. 
Here, here's the way he words it. Lewis writes this, Our experiences are only like the drawing, like penciled lines on flat paper. If they vanish in the risen life, they will vanish only as pencil lines vanish from the real landscape. Not as a candle flame that's put out, but as a candle flame which becomes invisible because someone has pulled up the blind, thrown open the shutters, and let the blood in the blaze of the risen sun. What will it be like, friend, to instantaneously, in the presence of God, become fully, beautifully, wonderfully adorned as feminine without any flaw, fault, or shame? fully representative of the image of God? What will it be like in an instant beholding Jesus to become fully masculine with all the strength and the dignity that we've been designed for? All that we have longed for. This is where we're going. So can we help each other get there? As, as we relate in community here, as we relate to singles, can we do it? Relating to men and to women, to male and to female, not simply to singles as some object of their status? Can we help, help them grow in manhood and womanhood? As a, as a church, can we encourage the men to self-sacrificially lead and protect and guide and use their strength for the good and the protection of others? As a church, can we encourage our ladies to lead in fellowship and communion and welcoming in of outsiders to a community of beauty and truth and grace and compassion? Can we in our homes respect our men, sacrificially love our women so that each flourishes in their God-ordained role? So knowing what we're longing for, knowing where we're going, can help us stand as a beacon of light in a world that's full of darkness on these very issues. So that stirred by the love and the longing, we will not only obey simply because Jesus is Lord and he told us to, but because we love him and we love his image. And we want it to flourish. Let's pray.